turn them with me uh, to Genesis chapter 17. We're moving along in this series, Unconventional, in the book of Genesis. Now, as you're turning there, I want you to think about something. I want you to capture something in your mind. Is there a promise of God that you see in the Scriptures that feels impossible to you as you think about it? And let me, let me make it more personal now. Maybe as you're thinking about that, you have certain personal situations that you are dealing with at the present moment that feel impossible to you. How is this going to work out? Even if God is sovereign, how could he fix this particular situation? Remember, faith is not living by explanations, but by promises of God. And let's be honest, if God doesn't keep his promises, then our faith is futile. You see, Our eternal future is contingent on God's ability to deliver on all of his promises. Not some, not most of his promises, but what? All of his promises. J. Hudson Taylor talked about any powerful work of God acting like this. Three words, impossible, difficult, done. Why could he say confidently that God works like this? Well, if you step away for a moment from your fears and your concerns and your problems and you just take a look at God's resume, you can find confidence in the same way. Think of this credential on God's resume, eternally experienced at overcoming the impossible. I mean, when I'm looking at a resume, I'd like to see three to five years of experience. How does eternally experience sound to you? Or what about this credential? Um, Always acts at just the right time. Who can say always on their resume? Or this credential, never makes a wrong decision. I'm here to tell you today that there is no one more qualified to deliver on his promises than the God of the universe. He starts with the the impossible, and he turns it into reality. And I love to see it. And I love to see it here in Genesis, working out in the life of Abraham. This is his life story. God meets him in Ur of the Chaldeans. He calls him into his unconventional promises. Abraham obediently follows him. But we know that there's a big problem, and the big problem has been coming along with us through the whole book of Genesis. Abraham has zero descendants. He just had a descendant through Hagar, but that wasn't the right descendant. So how is he going to move from totally wrong to countless? Hmm. Well, that's what we look at this morning, picking up in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Let's stop there and just think for a moment. Genesis chapter 16 says Ishmael's fathered at 86. Now Abraham's 99 years old. You do the math. 13 years is a long time to wait for anything. I mean, what does God hope to accomplish in making Abraham wait like this? I mean, is he playing games with him? Is he punishing him maybe for his debacle with Hagar? What is God trying to work out in Abraham's life? I want to suggest to you that God still needed time to truly prepare Abraham 
to appreciate the full riches of his promises. Many things just aren't as good if we get them too soon. I, we live in this instant culture. We want faith and God and miracles to work out on microwave time, one minute or less. But God is not interested in your faith being warm on the outside and cold in the middle. He wants you to have a deep, satisfying, saturated faith that is fully cooked all the way through down to the core. This quote from Chuck Swindoll struck me in my week of reading. He said, the lie that anything worthwhile can be acquired at, just, at once just doesn't cause long-term problems uh, when you're out shopping or something, but it will kill your spiritual life. You see, depth of spiritual maturity does not come quickly. It must be built over time. If greed is the demon of money, if lust is the demon of sex, if pride is the demon of power, then speed is the demon of depth. Don't believe the promises of the instant generation. A 13-week study to experience all the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 17 is saying it takes more like 13 years. Let that one sink in. And 13 years only if you keep pursuing God, keep trusting God, keep obeying God. You see, God has you in the slow cooker because he wants to have a real relationship with you. And I've said it before, it takes 10 years to have a 10-year relationship with someone. You can't just rush those kind of things. You have to settle in and enjoy the ride. In 13 years, God has been working on Abraham's heart and now he's ready to take the relationship to the next level. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. See, here in this text, God meets Abram by revealing a new name to him of himself, God Almighty. The Hebrew is the word El Shaddai. It's a difficult word for scholars to translate. It has something to do with God's power and God's sufficiency. So uh, Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke suggests these two possible meanings for the name. The powerful strong one, or secondly, the one who suffices. And I would suspect that it has something to do with both of those things. You see, in the Old Testament, El Shaddai is used 48 times, but 31 of those usages occurs in the book of Job. What a powerful reminder. You see, Job is the story of a man who is facing unimaginable suffering. If you want to think about someone losing everything with nothing else to lose but his own skin on his body, and even that gets impacted, then you go and you look at Job's life, it's almost senseless. It isn't senseless. Uh, not one millisecond of your suffering or pain in your life is senseless, but there's times where it feels like it when I'm in the pit of despair. But Job in his suffering is met by El Shaddai, the God who's powerful, the God who suffices. And by naming himself El Shaddai, God is saying to Abraham, while I am sometimes silent, I am still overpowering, ever-present, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, faithful, good, 
and sovereign. Fertility is not too hard for me. Age is not an obstacle that I cannot overcome. I am El Shaddai. How should we live in light of the fact that God is El Shaddai? Well, notice that God says to Abraham, walk before me, be blameless. I've said this before, but you might hear those words and think that God's asking you to be morally perfect. But friends, God never asks you to do something that you can't do, right? And so the term walk means something essentially like this, to orient your life to God's presence, promises, and commands. It's to live your life like God is God. Uh, The term blameless challenges you to surrender the control of your life to God without reservation, without qualification. So while you can't be perfect, you, you can entrust yourself to God. You can walk with him. You can be blameless in terms of the integrity of your relationship with God. Now, you cannot trust God, but only halfway. That's not trust. Either you trust him, and you walk in that trust, or you don't. So as we move forward now, God's going to make this covenant, reaffirm it with Abraham once again. And as he gets into this covenant, he starts talking about jobs, roles, right? Job, uh, God defines his job, and he defines Abraham's job. So let's start with God's job. Look at verses 3 through 8. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout this generation, their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now God is the initiator of the covenant He upholds the covenant. He's the one that brings the covenant to completion. You'll see there in verse 4, he says, it's whose covenant? My covenant. It's his first and foremost. If you're with me in Genesis 15, God made this covenant with Abraham that was meant to be two people walking through that bloody, gory mess of animals that had been cut in half, but he walks through it, what? Alone. While Abram's sedated. By walking alone saying, Abram, that's my job. That's what I take care of. Now to ensure that Abram understands who's driving the covenant, God also, by his authoritative right, changes Abraham's name, Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of the multitude of a multitude of nations. You see, um, people in Abraham's time took names very seriously. Uh, More seriously even than we do, sometimes we name a child because we think the name sounds good or there's some kind of a relational affinity attached to that name. But in their day, they believed that names uh, involved a person's identity and their character. So name-giving, name-changing was something that only someone with the, the right kind of authority could do. 
And I got to tell you, we kind of think about it the same way today. We don't just go around changing people's names, do we? I mean, imagine we're having a child dedication coming up in September, and I'm holding one of those babies, and I say, his mom and dad called him Benjamin, but now I declare that his name is Rob. <laughs> and I got to tell you, that's a great name. Um, but we might have a modern day stoning on our hands because what? I don't have that right. But God can change names because God can transform who we are down to the very core. When God changes a name in the Bible, it's always a promise to bring about a transformative blessing. So he was once Abram who had one son that came about by an illegitimate relationship. But now he shall be Abraham, the progenerator of nations and kings and children who outlive the stars. And what of Sarai? Well, in verse 15, we see that Sarai was, had her name changed. Sarai is just another sad woman who's had her hopes of mothering dashed against the rocks. But God changes her name to Sarah, the mother of the promised people and the future Messiah. You see, God is working his transformative work, and he's changing trajectories all over the Bible. I love how he changes Jacob's name. Jacob means trickster, but then God changes his name to Israel, which essentially means the one who God will fight for. Jacob thought that he had to trick his way into God's promises. God says, I will bring those things about by fighting for you. For Simon the fisherman, Jesus changes his name to Peter, who will be the rock. His confession that he makes of Jesus will be the foundation of the church. Or what about Saul, who's the Christian killer, who Jesus changes his name to Paul, the worldwide missionary who would spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all over. As a principle, I want to suggest to you that God changes your name when you come into a right relationship with him through Jesus. You see, the Bible promises that when you place your faith in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will dwell in you and transform your identity and character. He will transform your situation. He will immediately and progressively change you from a fallen sinner to a glorified saint. When you joyfully surrender your life to God's control, he will change your name. And what could a name change look like for you? Well, for all of us, our names changed from lost to found, some from greedy to generous, others from selfish to compassionate, others from angry to gentle. Some were victims but are now rescued. Others were bitterly disappointed but now satisfied and hope-filled in Christ. Some were addicted. Now they are filled in him. Some are spiritually starving. Others are spiritually full to the brim. God will do his job if you will trust him with your life. Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, that is why it all depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations 
in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Wow. God is so certain that he can call into existence the things that do not exist. He says to Abraham, I have made, past tense, you the father of many nations. No child yet? Not even a pregnancy? No problem. Because God calls into existence the things that have not existed. Impossible, difficult. What? Done. Only God can do that. Listen to the rhythm of his promise to Abram. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you nations and king. I will establish my covenant to you and your offspring. I will give you the land as an eternal covenant. I will be your God. Now I want to say something to you that I hope sinks into the brain and into the heart. God does not need you to be God. In fact, this might be hard for you to hear, but God does not need you. But, 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 he very much wants to work through you, in you, to accomplish his glorious plans that he has set forth in this world. He wants for us what he wanted for the Israelites so long ago, Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Let those words evaporate the weight that you have been unnecessarily carrying. God doesn't need you to be God. God says in his word, I will be your God. I don't need you to strive for extra money at the expense of your, our, our relationship together. I will be God over your money. I don't need you to worry endlessly about your children. I will be God to your children. I don't need you to suffer with anxiety and stress and depression over the fears that you've been carrying all of your life. I will be God over your circumstances. Doesn't that just take the load off? Let God be God. And we'll focus on being his people. And what does it mean to be God's people? Well, I think we see this as God defines Abraham's job. Look at verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now circumcision was not a new practice for Abraham. 
According to ancient literature, um, the Egyptians, the Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites all commonly practiced it. However, for them, it's some kind of ritualistic rite of passage when a boy was becoming a man. But look at how God has changed this rite of passage in verses 9 through 14. First, he says that all males shall be circumcised. Second, baby boys are to be circumcised on the eighth day. Third, both natural sons and foreign slaves were to be circumcised. And fourthly, anyone who refuses this would be cut off from the people of God. Now, here's an interesting point, though. The sign of the covenant, verse 11, was something that had to be done to them when they were too young to decide or remember. Isn't that interesting? I believe that God did this so that they wouldn't view it as saving, as something that they had done in order to earn God's favor, but instead would see it as a symbol in their flesh that reminded them that God was their God and that they were his people. Are you tracking with me here? So circumcision was never intended by God to be a way that the people of Israel could earn his favor. He's not looking for some kind of manufactured mechanical obedience. He's looking for marked individuals who have a deep commitment for him. And Moses makes this clear in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 6. He says, Circumcise therefore the flesh of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then Paul makes clear uh, in Romans 2, 28 and 29 exactly what God intended. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. The rabbis in Jesus' day missed this crucial point. They believed that circumcision was like a one-way ticket to heaven. didn't matter if you walked by faith with God. As long as you were cut, you were good to go. One of them said that all the circumcised have part in the world to come. Another said, circumcision saves from hell. But can circumcision save one lost sinner from hell apart from faith? No. Paul, again, makes this clear in Galatians 5.4. He says that if they submit to circumcision, this Galatians church, you are severed from Christ, meaning that you're being led away from trusting in Christ alone, and you would be justified by the law, and you would fall away from grace if you were to do that. Now, I'm sure that as I talk about circumcision this morning. I, I don't think anyone's feeling compelled or led to go and have an operation right now. I get that. It's not really tempting to you to trust in that for your salvation, but I got to tell you, I think people do bark up other wrong trees. Let me just be clear. Baptism will not save you. I encourage you to go to Dallas's beach tonight. I encourage you to watch those three people get baptized. But i got to tell you, when they get into that water, when they go underwater, even if I hold them under there a long time until the point where they do meet Jesus, they're not going to get saved. The Lord's Supper 
cannot save you. Showing up to church every Sunday cannot save you. Putting money in the offering plate cannot save you. Praying all day endlessly cannot save you. Reading the Bible hour after hour cannot save you. The sacraments cannot save you. The fact that you're a good person cannot save you. Your grandmother's faith cannot save you. No religious practice, no matter how helpful or good for you, can save you because God doesn't save people through a practice. He saves people through a person. Jesus. Acts 4.12 makes it clear salvation is found in what? No one else. Not nowhere else. No one else. Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? Me. Now just so you're not going to swing the pendulum in the other direction and say something along the lines of, well, God doesn't care if I get baptized or go to church or tithe or obey his commands. Let's talk about that for a minute. Notice that God strictly required Abraham's descendants to be baptized. He wanted them to undergo the physical act. And if they didn't, the text says that they would be cut off from his people. You see, when God says something, he means business. Go home today and read Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, and see how serious God was about circumcision when he had just called Moses to go down and and speak on behalf of him for his people. And God is about to kill him because his two sons have not been circumcised. Or better yet, next week when Harry gets back from the Fletcher reunion that he's at in Hilton Head Island right now, you go up to Harry and you ask Harry about Joshua chapter 5. That is one of Harry's favorite passages in all the Bible. It's about the people of Israel about to go conquest the land and God says, hey, there's one thing you've got to take care of first and I'll let you use your imagination there. Harry's actually uh, going to be preaching in August and September, and uh, he's thinking of doing a two-part series on his favorite passage and uh, calling it Partial Obedience Just Won't Cut It. I think that's a good name. Ed Dobson says these words, Faith cannot be confined to the inner recesses of the heart. It eventually finds outward expression. For a Christian, these outward symbols of faith are varied. They include baptism as well as good works. You see, just as we can't rely on practice, we can't also rely on hollow words. It's all well and good to say that I believe in Jesus and Jesus alone, but James asks us this very hard question. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? What does God want from you? He wants the genuine article. He wants transformative faith. He wants faith that relies on the promises of God, faith that pursues the promises of God, faith that obeys the the promises of God. And don't misunderstand me. And I'm not saying that God expects you to be perfect. I'm not saying that you can't ever go through seasons of doubt or frustration in your Christian life. I'm not even saying that you're never going to make a mess of things. You're going to make a mess of things. Abraham made a mess of things. But i got to tell you, at the end of the day, Abram followed God, trusted God, loved God, pursued God, and that's the kind of faith God's looking for. That's the kind of faith that God can work his impossible plans through. 
And we're going to see this happen as he pronounces his unconventional promise over Sarah. Let's move on in the text, verses 15 through 21. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let's stop there. Now listen, okay. Just in case you're going to be hard on Abraham here for laughing at God, if you were 100 and, and Sarah was 90, you would have laughed too. Okay? I mean, this is impossible. You ever have something that just kind of hits you, it's so incredulous that your first reaction is just like, what? Are you kidding me? And, and he's thinking about this and he's saying, this is not possible, God. I mean, let's ask the question, is this possible? How old is the oldest woman who has given birth by natural birth in the world? 59. It was Dawn Brooks. Uh, she conceived and gave birth in 97 with her husband, who was 74 years old, Raymond. The previous record was held by an American woman who gave birth in 1956 when she was 57 years old. Yeah, God's talking about something impossible here, right? This proposition is so outside Abraham's realm of reason that he suggests Ishmael to God is a more acceptable alternative. God, we already knew that you were messing up in this area. We kind of took care of this problem. I've got a solution for you. Why don't you just go with the solution that will actually work? But God says what? No! An emphatic no in verse 19. No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But then in verse 20, God promises something special for Ishmael because he hasn't forgotten Ishmael either. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Now I get the sense as I read this passage that Abraham did love his son Ishmael and that he wanted to be a good father to him. But boy, I just try to put myself in Ishmael's shoes. I mean, can you imagine growing up in that home environment under the circumstances of your birth. Sure, maybe everyone kind of beat around the bush, but gosh, he's 13 years old now. He's starting to connect dots, isn't he? I call him dad. I call Hagar mom. And, and Abram's wife, well, she just kind of looks at me when she's willing to look at me with an intense hot glare. And, you know, it's, it, he is receiving... That, that scorn and that ridicule for the sin of being born. I mean, can you imagine that? 
In college, I worked with a guy who felt like an Ishmael. His father's poor choices left him feeling like a second-class, forgotten, inconvenient, I only have time for you once a year because I live here and you live there mistake. Maybe some of you feel like Ishmael. You felt like a mistake. I want you to hear something. God never, ever, ever views you as a mistake. You were planned in the eternal mind of God. Verse 20 is a play on words. As for Ishmael, which you could translate God hears, that's what his name means, I have heard you. Abraham did not need to worry for Ishmael because God heard before Ishmael was born when he told Hagar to name her son God hears. That's true. God does hear. God doesn't let one single child go unnoticed in this world. You know, when Harry last week was talking about those precious children being abused and enslaved, I mean, it just absolutely crushed my heart. I I wept through the second service. I kind of Pick up my act. I said goodbye to people. I went home. I went to the backyard. I sat on a swing and just cried. And Katie came out back and she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I just can't get those kids out of my head. I'm just thinking about them all the time. He didn't even describe their situation, but he doesn't have to. This is a dark world. And I was like, I was living, I was sitting under the crushing weight of a problem that is impossible for me. How can I possibly do something about this issue, substantively speaking? But in this text, God applied salve to the heart. You see, while I am helpless in this situation, God is not helpless in any situation. God's expertise is to work out the impossible. You see, If you were to empathize with all of the problems of this world without God, just think about that for a moment. 22 million slaves. People who are in forced starvations because their governments are oppressing them. Over 360 billion children aborted. We don't know what's happened in North Korea entirely or Burma. I mean, there is human tragedy, human suffering, human life that is lost, countless lives just going off into oblivion if God does not exist. But Genesis tells us that there is a God and he hears. There was a verse that was medicine to my heart some years ago when I was a youth pastor. I a group of 17 students on a mission trip to Boston. And as we were debriefing about the trip around in a circle, 15 of the 17 students shared that they were from broken homes, that they felt like an inconvenience to their parents. Boy, I didn't feel good after hearing that. Then I looked at Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless, Protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell 
in a parched land. Take comfort in knowing that God doesn't need you, but be challenged by the fact that he wants to work in and through you. See, my hope for some of you is that you will go and rescue a Hagar, that you will love an Ishmael. That would be a huge blessing to my heart to see. Verse 21, we come back into the story. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Essentially, Abraham, start the clock. I'm about to deliver. Remember Hudson Taylor's words about works where God is involved, right? Impossible, difficult, done. You guys want to say that with me? I think we should say that together to affirm the truth of that statement. Impossible, difficult, done. Let's say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. Impossible, difficult, done. Start the clock, Abraham. Start ticking it down. I'm about to deliver on my promise. And you know what you're going to name your son, Abraham? You're going to name him Laughter. Guess why? Because I'm going to have the last laugh when I deliver on my promise to you. And what does Abraham do? Well, verse 23 captures his faithful response. It tells us that Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and his household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. God reminded him that he is not silent, or when he is silent, that he is still in control. He promised him that his expertise is working out the impossible, and he said to Abraham, your job, your job, Abraham, is to trust and obey. Paul makes this clear in Romans 4, 18 through 21. He explains the significance of Abraham's faith. He says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Yes, he is. When I opened that sermon, I asked you to capture in your mind that situation that feels impossible to you right now. For Abraham, it was his age, it was his wife's barrenness. He wondered how God could work in that situation. Maybe for you, it's something similar. Maybe there's a situation that feels impossible. You've looked at every eventuality and you've said, how is this going to work? Well, what did Abraham do? Well, Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I want to give